Well, greetings in the precious name of Jesus. I uh, bring greetings from Effort of Christian Fellowship, and I would like to tell you that we at Effort are encouraged when we see fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord that keep rowing through life. As we already heard this morning, the seas aren't always calm, but if we have Jesus as our pilot, then we can, we can make it. He takes us through the storms. And it is encouraging when we see others of like faith pressing on and serving the Lord in truth. Let us have a word of prayer. Rise to your feet, please, and uh, we'll come before the Lord again. Our dear Lord God, you are worthy of our service. You're worthy of our life. You're worthy of our love. You are worthy this morning to speak to us, to give us your word, to teach us. Father, we are We are poor and needy. We desire to be your disciples, to have you guide us through life, through thick and thin, through trials, turmoils, disappointments, and yes, many good, wonderful, and encouraging things as your children that we can enjoy. Bless the fellowship at Oasis today. And continually. And Father, I pray for your people, for the Church of Jesus Christ at home and scattered abroad, that you would work mightily to cleanse, to purify, to encourage, to lift up, to strengthen the weary, give courage to the faint in heart, and teach us each day that we might be faithful. We need your spirit. We need your strength. Father, I pray for this next hour. Lord, am I standing here in weakness and wanting to share the word with these dear people? Give me clarity of heart and mind. And Father, may the things that you would say be said and nothing more. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I love the book of Genesis. I love the creation account. I love as a Christian to just be able to take the word of God as it gives us, as, as God gives it to us and believe it. And looking around at the confusion in the world and the kicking against the pricks in so many ways that people find themselves in resisting the truth that we can just fall back on the word of God. We can know why we're here how we came about, what the earth and what we see around us, what it's about, where it's headed, and we can have ourselves prepared. We can walk in truth. I would like if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Just as a reminder, I want to point something out to you, and I'm sure that most of you are quite aware of this. And 
to a greater or lesser extent, believe it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the beginning, God created all things, and it was very good. I enjoy following creationist teachings and often uh, look and listen to and read of arguments, debates and such between creationists and evolutionists. And I just always come away with a sigh of relief. I know the truth. I know God. I know his word. And we can continue to know him more and more. Well, today... I want to speak about, well, the title will be You, Your Hands, and God. When God created us, He created us exactly as He designed, as He desired to design us. He didn't make any mistakes. He didn't have to consult with anyone else. In his creation. But he. Like I said. He created everything good. As the Bible says. And he uh, gave us these hands. He didn't have to. He put these articulating booms. On the higher part of our body. And attached these hands at the end. That can do. Quite an amazing. Amount of things. If connected with an intelligent mind. That he created. It's pretty awesome when you stop and think about it. Pretty amazing. I would like to encourage you, give you exhortation and direction how to use those hands that God has given you. I would like to have you go from here inspired to seek God in your everyday work life to see him in your everyday work life and to show forth God in your everyday work life. Now let's turn to Ephesians Ephesians 4:28. This will be our theme verse. We'll have some other readings. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. First off, the exhortation is, let him that stole, let him that used to steal, steal no more. Get out of the stealing business. Get away from it. There's an alternative. There's a better way. There's a way that God wants for us. And it's not to live a life of stealing. Years ago, my wife and I were in our little house as a young married couple and just relaxing in the evenings about bedtime. A car stopped. Our our house was right by the road, just a little backcountry road. Car stopped. Oh, must be getting company. And we heard some footsteps on the little 
wooden porch. Wonder who's coming. Well, just like that, the car door slammed and they took off again. Well, it didn't take us real long to realize that some clothing was stolen right off our porch. When we were at home and awake and just on the other side of that little wall, Never saw him again, but somebody stole him. As a young boy, my brothers enjoyed sleeping outdoors, and I did too later on, but I was fairly small when this happened. They were outside sleeping. Woke up by the barking of the dog and clop, 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 clop down the road. Somebody was running away. The dog had discovered him. We had a produce sand. And somebody apparently was hungry for a watermelon and wouldn't, didn't really care to pay for him. I don't think he got any that night. Why, as we travel around, do we sometimes see construction sites with cranes and, and people are off duty and there's the crane sticking up and the cable comes down and it has something way up in the air, like a generator or a toolbox or something. Nobody's going to reach it. Why do cars and trailers and toolboxes and phones have locks? There are people that would rather steal than work for their sustenance. Now, there are many forms of stealing. It all comes as a package, typically. It comes with a heart that is unregenerate. And finds the idea of working unpleasant. Would rather take something for nothing. And enjoy living off of other people's work. Stealing can take many different forms. It's usually not quite as direct and bold as taking that clothing off the porch. There's a reason the thief came at night to steal his watermelon. He wasn't planning on meeting a dog. There are other forms of stealing. It might be pilfering, taking a little bit here and a little bit there off the job site or wherever it is. We know it's not ours, but we'd just like to have a little more than what we are willing to work for. Fudging of numbers. To one's own advantage. Had an acquaintance years ago that uh, we interacted with quite a bit. He was the type of character that not too many people trusted very far. And it wasn't real hard to figure out why. And he had a hard time trusting anybody else. Well, one day... He admitted to me that times are hard, and in his mind, you just about cannot get by without taking advantage of somebody. Well, that was his experience, probably for a reason. People didn't trust him very far, so he had a hard time rowing through life. In the same spirit, people fall for get-rich-quick schemes, which often will hurt somebody. Even if you get rich, quick, not working for it, somebody will have to pay for it. 
if it looks like easy money, if it sounds too good to be true, you don't want anybody to know about it so you can do this thing and, and get a lot of money without having to work hard for it. Well, it's probably too good to be true. It might be better to go dig ditches rather than to get into these things. Years and years ago, my cousin learned the hard way. He found out emus were quite expensive. And you could sell a baby emu for thousands of dollars. Even just an egg, if it was a fertile egg, get a thousand dollars for it. So he got excited and he went and bought two emus. $5,000 a piece. Well, about a month later, before he sold any eggs, he'd have had a hard time giving them away. He could have butchered them maybe and got $50 for them, if that much. That was a difficult lesson for him. A lot of hard-earned money for the young man. Historically, laziness was considered one of the seven deadly sins. And I'm not trying to say that my cousin was lazy. I didn't see him that way, but he got sucked into something that was too good to be true. And he learned the hard way. Proverbs 18, verse 9. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. There's been times where that would kind of jump out to me, and how can that be just just kind of being slack in our work, how can that be the same or close kin to being a great waster? Well, someone on the work site or wherever you are working along with others, if we are just slack and have a bad attitude towards work, that can have quite a negative impact where it can spread and it can, what little bit the lazy person gets done, He might have well taken away from others' work ethic and profitability much more than he actually got done. So, in essence, he is wasting. The slothful will make many excuses, like the lion in the streets in Proverbs. It's pretty easy when we don't want to do something to figure out why we shouldn't get out and do it. And that spirit leads to stealing as well as all sorts of Sins. Idleness is the devil's workshop. The saying comes out of the Middle Ages. It's been around for a long time. It's working with our hands. Historically, the idea of manual labor was seen as quite low. That was for the slaves. That was for the prisoners of war, perhaps. Or other people that just didn't amount to much. And you had a great gap between the rich and the poor. The poor were the ones doing the manual labor. In Roman and Greek societies, this was very true. However, in the Israeli society, in, uh, among the Israelites, I, I got this little reading from a Jewish encyclopedia. reads like this, The Bible regards labor as an aspect of the order of heaven and earth and all therein. According to Genesis 2.5, a condition of the creation of plant life was the presence of a human being to cultivate it. 
Adam's role was to till and to keep the Garden of Eden. The curse entailed by Adam's sin was not labor, but the sweaty toil required henceforth to rust bread from a thorny and thistly earth. So work is by no means part of the curse. The enjoyment of work is harder to come by, most certainly, than it was before the fall. We have thistles to deal with. We have an earth that would much rather bear weeds than that which we plant. If many things against us, continuing to read here, labor was considered so much a part of creation that God himself is depicted as a worker. He founded the earth and the heavens are his handiwork. He is the fashioner of everything. Man is clay and God the potter. He worked six days at creating the world and rested on the seventh. The Christian's view of manual labor was quite different from that of the Roman and Greek empires. Manual labor was seen as an honorable thing, no matter how lowly, if it was digging ditches, whatever it might be, to get out and to work to the glory of God was seen as quite an honorable thing. And that has changed societies quite largely. Our nation, as we know it, has largely been formed as with that mentality of work that it is an honorable thing. It's not demeaning to get out and work and get dirty. It is an honorable thing. All labor done as unto God was and should be considered an act of worship. Working with our hands is in so many ways good for us. And one of those ways is it humbles the soul. To get out, to sweat, to get dirty, get smelly, whatever it might be, have disappointments and failures and realize our limitations, it's good for us. Why in Psalm 1 is this scornful, the scorner sitting down? Isn't that so typical? It's much easier to be scornful when we're not doing anything. When we're out there applying ourselves, doing what we can, and realizing that life doesn't come easy, it's easy to make mistakes, and we are all very limited, that hopefully eliminates the scorning in our hearts that can so easily be there. Jesus is an example to us of not being above work. He grew up son of a carpenter in a carpenter's shop. And the Bible doesn't say a whole lot of how he worked, of his work ethics, of what he got done, of exactly what he made. But it does tell us that at 12 years of age, he was increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We know very well that he was not a lazy carpenter. Paul was an example as well. Him being very busy, traveling, evangelizing, preaching the gospel with a passion, with a burden for the churches, having the care of the churches on his heart daily. He still labored with his hands. He still worked. He was a tent maker. And he worked for his way. Maybe not totally. We don't need to have that idea that we can't receive any help. But all of us are called to applying ourselves where we can. The admonition given in Scripture 
that he who doesn't work, neither should he eat. That goes a long ways in motivating us to work, doesn't it? If we know we're not going to eat unless we work. But our society has probably come a long ways from that. Now, speaking of working with our hands, doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be with our hands. It doesn't mean that if your work requires a bit less of your hands and more of your mind or more of your speaking or your feet, that's less holy in some ways. The idea of working with our hands doesn't necessarily mean just our hands. It is speaking of all of our mental and physical capabilities, applying ourselves, applying all of our faculties to uh, to labor. We speak of the hand of God doing this or that. It doesn't mean that we think God necessarily does it with his hands. We speak of someone's handiwork. It doesn't mean that we're just talking about the things he did with his hand. There's other things involved. So to think that manual labor is more holy if it's more manual isn't necessarily going down the right track. Now, what I'm trying to say this morning, several other scriptures of working with our hands, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. And 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 12. I invite you to turn there, 2 Thessalonians 6 through 12. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Now, not making a lot of comments out of these scriptures, just to reinforce the uh, teaching of God to apply ourselves, to uh, put ourselves to work. And to know God, if we know the God we serve, and realize that He is a consistent God, the things he created are consistent. There are laws in order that if we do one thing, it's going to produce a certain thing. God is such a God that whatsoever we sow, that shall we reap. And whatsoever we work, that's consistently going to work out to uh, a certain extent. In societies where there's high levels of superstition, we never quite know what's going to happen. And always trying to appease God, seeing God as unpredictable and as inconsistent or inconstant, those societies will not have a good work ethic. They will not 
know their God to be such that can be trusted to produce a certain thing by doing a certain thing. So our God is God of creativity. And as we know him and know how God works, how his creation works, then we can also apply ourselves to great creativity. To know the God we serve produces dignity of labor. And the dignity of labor produces a middle class. Like I spoke of earlier, there are many ungodly nations where most people are either extremely rich or extremely poor. And you see that today in many godless societies. Not here necessarily to lift up the middle class, but just to, just to show what happens if we apply God's principles and apply ourselves to laboring. It has been said people like the Christians who believe in the dignity of labor and are not given to lavish living and entertainment cannot fail to prosper. And that's speaking in general, of course. That's not to put down anyone that struggles to make ends meet. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with such people and that there's times where many people are poor. That's not to say that. But if we understand God, take him at his word and apply ourselves to working with our hands, good things come forth. And that's where God wants us. Now moving on to the scripture teaching us to work that which is good. A very important part of this verse. We don't just work just to make ends meet. We should make sure that whatever we work is a blessing. It's a blessing to mankind and brings praise and glory to God. And we are first Christians. We are not first farmers or carpenters or homemakers, teachers, whatever it might be. Our first calling is to be Christians, to be Christ-like, to be followers of Jesus. And then out of that, to walk worthy of that great calling. And that's much more than the walking worthy is much more than having the right doctrines, having the right understandings, knowing the right things, and showing up on Sunday morning looking right. Those things are all important, but as we go through the week, and as we live our lives, and what we produce in life, we need to make sure that it lines up with the Christian faith, and that it is a blessing to mankind. Growing or marketing harmful substances does not fit this category. Two, we are called to um, obey the government. And, of course, this is within reason. If our government commands us in something different than God does, we are always to obey God rather than man. So, working under the radar and doing things not sanctioned by the government, there are times for it, but insofar as the government does not disagree with the will of God, we as Christians, in our occupation, should be law-abiding and a benefit and blessing to the government and to general society. Marketing something that belongs to the kingdom of darkness does not fit for the Christian. Selling anything that is 
harmful, anything that is wrong, does not fit. So whatever we do, whatever work we do with our hands, to see that it is good. Life is too precious and too short, and our work occupies too much of our time to just be doing something of no value to others that does not shine forth and show forth Christ in our everyday life. Opportunities in the workplace. Are you faithfully looking for opportunities? Not just to make that extra dollar, not just to make progress and turn around a profitable business, but to be a blessing, to help people along the way, looking for ways of doing that. Face work with eagerness. Have you ever met somebody Monday morning and you say, Hello, how are you today? It's Monday. That sort of thing. It's pretty common. Monday is automatically associated as not so good, not so nice. But Friday, oh, we all like Friday. It's the last work day. We're ready for the weekend, right? As Christians, as the representatives of God's kingdom, we should face Monday morning with just as much enthusiasm as we typically do a Saturday or a Sunday. Yes, I love Sundays. I love getting together with the people of God, and that should be so. But to face Monday morning with a humdrum spirit and just, ho-hum, we got to work again and wishing it was Friday. That's not where we should be. Do all things heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Face life with enthusiasm. The root word, the Greek word for enthusiasm, entheos, meaning God-filled. So being God-filled should automatically make us enthusiastic people. Whether at work, whether at play, whether at fellowship, wherever it might be. The unbeliever really has no grounds for being enthused about life. He's not God-filled. Do your work to be a blessing again. And then moving on, so that we have to give to him that needeth. We're not just working for ourselves. We're not just working to build a big bank account, to fatten up our checkbook. We're not doing that just to build our little empire. We shouldn't even be seeking to build an empire for ourselves. We are to work with our hands, the thing which is good, so that we may have to give to him that needs. What will you do with the blessings of God? I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel message this morning. We're not, we're not to just seek God for prosperity 
and then fly our airplanes and and uh, live a fancy lifestyle, drive fancy vehicles, just live it up and lavish it upon ourselves. Proverbs thirteen eleven, wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. Proverbs fourteen twenty three, in all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury or poverty, deep poverty. We just like to go around talking about things and talking about all the good ideas we have and everything that we wish the world would do, you know, fix all the problems of the world and aren't willing to apply ourselves, tends only to poverty. Be giving with the increase God gives you in whatever way or shape or form that might take place. Seek a workplace where there is moderation. As in any truth, there's a ditch on both sides. Laziness isn't the only ditch. We can also fall into the other side of pursuing work too much. Never being able to say no. Getting good at what we do and then not saying no and just always work, 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 work and finding our identity in that. Seek a workplace where there is moderation and flexibility sufficient to Live the Christian life to do the things God calls you to do. If work ties you up too much and there's no time to be holy, no time to seek God, no time to read His Word, no time to be in fellowship with the saints, no time to speak of Christ, then we need to do a reality check and step back. Either slow down, say no more, or maybe change the occupation. The end pursuit is to lay up treasure in heaven. That's where it should be. Now for another scripture reading, let us turn to Luke 16, 1-14. is the blessed word of God. Listen to it with reverence. May our hearts be open to the Lord this morning and the things that he would have to teach us. Luke 16, 1 to 14. And by the way, we're going to speak about mammon here a bit. Mammon being the term used as wealth personified. We're speaking of a subject that has often ruined families. It's a major competitor to holy living. It's an avenue of much carnality. It's quite common for men to bring upon themselves swift destruction and many sorrows. Those that will be rich. Those that pursue mammon. I've heard say, and I'll leave you to consider how true it is, and I... I Generally, I'm blessed with what I'm seeing. I'm not saying this in a critical spirit, but I have heard say that the pursuit of mammon 
Okay, as Anabaptist people, we, we like to believe that we take the Bible seriously, right? We like to say, well, thus says the word, we're going to do it. And I've blessed with the opening this morning, reminding us to allow God to be our standard, His word to be our standard, and not the culture around us. And that's a lifelong enterprise and uh, quite occupying. But anyway, I've heard say that the pursuit of mammon is possibly a great blind spot among our people. Where all of a sudden the Bible just, even though it's clear also, we can't really dictate it and just kind of slip it under the radar, so to speak. Again, I don't know how true it is. While this subject tends to wreak havoc and much destruction, the subject of mammon, we cannot get away from it, and it is inadvisable to try. In fact, we are directed to walk closely with it. Grab the bull by the horns, so to speak. Grab the bull of mammon by the horns and rest it around and use it for the glory of God. Mammon, is it your servant or your master? You're going to relate to it. It's going to be in your life. It's going to be all around us. It has everything to do with our heart towards the matter. And where our heart is will manifest itself in all of life. Now let's read the blessed word of God. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commanded the unjust steward, because he had done wisely, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. Now, we've just read a parable, and a parable 
is not necessarily to be taken as a lesson along every line of it. We don't take from this parable that it's okay to be a bad steward. We don't take from it that it's all right to deal unjustly in business or to cheat for selfish gain. A parable has is designed as a short story designed to teach a moral lesson. The lesson in this parable is the wisdom of preparing for the future. So the children of this world tend to be wiser than the children of light. The children, children of this world tend to know how to look out for themselves. But the children of light tend to forget, tend to get wrapped up in things outside of their kingdom that has no good bearing for their future. We too have a master that we have wronged. We too have a limited amount of time in which to get things in order before we are called to account for the things which we have done. So the word is prepare for the future. Lay up treasure in heaven. As you go about your work, as you face work tomorrow morning, whenever it might be, why are you there? Just to lay up treasure on earth? Make sure your treasure is being laid up in heaven. This is not called getting saved by our works, our works of self-righteousness. This is called obeying our Lord Jesus, whom we claim to believe. Again, make mammon your servant and not your master. We cannot serve both. It's just that plain and simple. They're not both going to tell us the same thing all the time. Many times, mammon and God will have opposing plans for us, opposing will for our life. We either have, have to go and listen to one or the other. Can't do both if they don't agree. So if we get up in the morning, even before we go to bed, when we set that alarm, are we setting our alarm in mind of listening to mammon? Following mammon? Or following God? If we follow mammon, we probably... Allow ourselves enough time to, you know, have about five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen maybe to, do we need to get going? And we don't get to bed early enough to have that time in the morning to be with the Lord, to seek Him, seek His Word. Mammon. Well, many times, whisper in your ear quite a different message than God, what God will whisper in your ear. When we get up in the morning, what's the first thing on our mind? I get to serve God today. I'm going to go to work and serve God. Wonder what I can do for God today. 
wonder what God has in store for me today. Or, I wonder where mammon would take me today. There's a constant tension in life between God and mammon. Constant tension. And it's right that it is so. There are many constant tensions that the Christian faces. And it's right that it is so. That's the nature of this life and of the world that God has put us in. If there were no tension, there would be no making of choice. If there were no making of choice, there would be no expression and proving of our love. There's a constant tension between making money or pursuing our work, whatever it might be, getting ahead in life, and taking time to be holy. Now, when we pursue taking time to be holy, that doesn't mean that we won't get ahead in life. But there's two very different masters that we have to choose which we're serving. Let's talk about honesty in business. Doing our business honestly. Of our witness at work. If we present ourselves as followers of Jesus, but our customers and clients, co-workers, whoever it might be, quickly sense that we're really out for the top dollar, and that's all that matters, it will give quite a bad testimony. Our actions and interactions at work can speak very loudly. I was some time ago at a fast food restaurant, a large chain restaurant, and something happened when I was in there that was quite shocking. There was a customer and his mom and uh, the young man seems to have had a speech defect and the uh, waiter, someone that they knew each other, I, I, uh, I could see. But the waiter very clearly and very loudly mocked his customer to the point that I just felt sick in my stomach. Just about walked out of the store. I didn't quite, I didn't know what to say or do. I just got my food and barely had an appetite feeling so bad for this customer that couldn't take more. He stormed out of the store. To this day, even though I know that that was just one man that did that, that was, it happened to be in that certain store. I know very well that the owners wouldn't approve of that kind of behavior. And that very likely I could go into 
that same chain hundreds of times and not experience the same thing, I still connect that store with what happened. And I'd go in, in uh, and buy some food if the need arose, but I don't feel like it. Just as soon stay away from that place and all stores like it. This could happen any place, but I just give that to say this, that the things we do, the things we say, the interactions we have, the way we interact with the public has a lot of bearing. People remember what such and such a person was like and how it was to deal with him and connect, connect it with that whole business and that whole people group and church and whatever else they can connect it with and build very positive or very negative opinions about businesses and churches and people groups based off of our interactions at work. Are we known to look out for our customers? Are we known to go the extra mile, the extra step, see things along the way that we can do as little extras? doesn't take much to make the message clear that we're not out just to give as little as we can and get as much as we can. We can be known to look out for our customers or we can be known to make it appear like we're looking out for our customers. And wherever we're at, probably will come through. If we put on a big front that we're out for their good just to get business, that might not work so well. We have to make sure we're real. We want to be real, right? This morning, we want to be real. Real Christians. Real churchgoers. Real people that get into the real word. But Monday morning, let's be just as real as any other time. Make it your heart's desire and your everyday goal to have every transaction, every contract, Every business dealing, every project, be a mutual blessing. A mutual blessing. It goes both ways. The more we truly look out for those we work for, the more it will come back to bless us. But there again, don't do it for that motive. Just to try to get what you can for yourself. Employer-employee relationships. Here again, if you rub much shoulders with the contracting world, it doesn't take long to figure out that a lot of people don't like their boss. They can tell a lot of nasty jokes about their boss. And... Kind of carry on how they want to when he's gone. Not really trying to be productive. In a world like that, if we have good relationships with our employer, good relationships with our employees, and with our co-workers, 
that can really shine forth, that can speak volumes. When employers and employees and co-workers are looking out for each other and speak respectfully one of another and love one another, the world will know we are Christians by the way we love each other. That's not just the church. That's not just Sundays. That's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. How we love each other in our work. We'll speak loudly. Take time for the Lord. It can be tough when we're busy. Trying to get as much done in a day as we can. We don't need to put ourselves on a guilt trip if we don't speak of Christ to every person we meet. But to have that general mindset to take time for the Lord when we're working. True, employers can make a bad reputation for themselves very quickly if they are only looking out for themselves, if they are making quite a windfall and employees are barely getting by. The employer doesn't like to get dirty, doesn't like to sweat, but he makes far more than those that work hard and are miserable for it. So, as employers, do you see yourself on one level with your employees? Do you guard that temptation to lavish it upon yourselves? To exalt yourself and keep your employees on a lower strata? Again, the call to moderation. And it comes back to motives. Why are we doing what we do? And what for? What are the goals? If God blesses and prospers, what happens with that? Just pursue relationships in general. At the workplace and through your workday, whether it's at home or abroad, pursue godly relationships. The pursuit of doing good through the week at work. You've probably heard the story, I've probably heard it a couple times, of a man that was quite a shrewd businessman. Everybody knew that he was well-to-do and liked it so, liked to live it up. And uh, he was shrewd in his business. One day, the great and wonderful news came, this man got converted. And another man asks the question, did his pocketbook get converted too? If the conversion is real, that pocketbook gets converted too, right? What it used to do has now changed. The way that pocketbook used to think isn't the same anymore. 
Proverbs 24, 33 and 34. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Back to the spirit of laziness and slothfulness. If that's where we're at, and we'd rather just fold up our hands and take it easy, snooze a little longer, and live life that way, it says our poverty will come as one that traveleth. Back in that day, they didn't fly around with airplanes and jets and and highway on highways that had 70 mile an hour speed limits and people couldn't keep it at that hardly and traveling most likely and very often was done by foot and if you're traveling by foot you don't just walk along on a lazy morning stroll you really make time and if you make time in that way where you're one foot in front of the other, just steady, pressing on. If we face life with a slothful spirit, poverty, it won't come with one big bang, but it'll come slowly, but surely, with the emphasis on surely. One that travels on foot is slow but steady, but it eats up distance. Just eats it up and eats it up. And it might go faster than you think. The Native Americans of Copper Canyon in Mexico are quite the runners, I hear. They run up the mountains day in and day out. That's their mode of travel, just running, running, running. These people are quite the runners. They have been known to run basically nonstop 200 miles in a couple of days' time, two days' time without stopping. I don't see how that's possible, but that's what they say. So they make quite good time and they are good runners. So is poverty if we have the spirit of slothfulness. And this can apply quite well spiritually as well as physically. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Yes, from the ant... We know we are to learn diligence, to apply ourselves, but also consider how the ant works together. Consider the teamwork of an ant heel, an ant colony. Quite the teamwork, and I can't go into detail. I didn't just study that recently. But that's a beautiful thing if God's people know how to work together. And that applies in the workplace quite well at the, at, at the church, but in the workplace as well. Even if two can work together in beautiful harmony, God's testimony can shine forth. Recently working at a farm that was purchased by some Chinese and was a, uh, it seemed like a catching pan for Immigrants from China, there were quite a large number of Chinese individuals. Most of them couldn't speak, 
speak English, one or two could. I was quite impressed with their way of working together. There was quite a bit that happened on that farm in one day by each individual doing his part and applying himself into the bit at work, all working together, whether it was out with the ducks or in the barn, changing things around. I was just quite impressed. It was a beautiful thing. In conclusion, do all things heartily with enthusiasm as unto the Lord and not to men. You might say, well, I'm too tired to apply myself. I'm too tired to do it heartily. Well, God has God has ways of dealing that and yes that can be a trial and challenge but perhaps if our heart is right our spirit's right our pursuit is right perhaps not saying for sure but applying ourselves with enthusiasm can actually generate energy. When we go at our day, just humdrum, doing slipshod work, not finding any pleasure in work, we can feel quite tired. Whereas, if we are serving the Lord with our whole heart, Desiring to bring in glory. Trusting in Him for strength. You might be surprised what all can happen. All things are God's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We are but stewards. And another scripture in Ephesians 5 admonishes us beautifully to redeem the time. Because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. Redeeming opportunities. There are several Greek words translated to time. One would be time as we know it, going by the clock. We have an hour's time from 11 to 12. That's one form of time. Another way of using time is opportunities. The time for doing such and such comes and goes. The time for ministering to that soul comes and then it goes and it's gone. Redeeming the time, doing what we can when the opportunities come, is redeeming the time. Face work with a God-filledness, holy enthusiasm. We can only do that if our perspective is right and we acknowledge God and us as his stewards and servants, honor God with your increase. Our holy God has commissioned us to work and that to do it positively. Firstly and foremostly, to bring glory to God.
And may the Lord help me to be obedient to his word and all of us. May God add his blessings. Thank you.